Welcome to season two. I'm thrilled to welcome first time and returning listeners to an absolute A-list of guests this year. If I had to sum them up, it's like I'm coaching an all-star team of hikers and outdoor aficionados. Take a listen to episode zero to get a quick intro to the pod and the podcast guests that I've already had a chat with and lined up for this season. Today, I talk with Gulnar Tumba, or as most call her, G, who's a professor of marketing at San Francisco State University, and by the way, my former neighbor, lucky me, who's attempting to climb the seven high summits on the world's seven continents. What are the seven summits? Denali, Okanagua, Elbrus, Kilimanjaro, Punjakajaya, Vincent, Everest. You heard of them? Well, that's just one list. There's some complexities in there, but G will cover up those in the pod. On the podcast, we talk how G prepares for tackling the world's largest mountains physically, mentally, gear-wise, prepping for the altitude. And of course, we chat about various climbs and stories regarding those six summits that she has climbed. She's hiked six of the tallest mountains in the world, and I've barely hosted a dozen podcasts, but we're totally equal. Let's get into it. Hi, G. Hi. We've, we've talked about this a few times, and we didn't make it quite into season one. Uh, you've been busy, I know, uh, pursuing this goal of yours and having a full-time gig as a professor. And I wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about you climbing some of the world's tallest mountains. Yeah, thank, thanks um, for having me. Happy to share the stories that I have. Yeah, and so to, to hop into it, you you have experience climbing, as I mentioned, the world's tallest mountains. You're on this pursuit to complete the seven summits. For those who don't know, the seven summits being the tallest point in each continent. Uh, she's got six of seven, which we'll hop into it a little bit later time. Before we hop into those climbs, I I, I just think about the amount of prep that goes into reaching a summit. We're talking physical prep mental prep, gear prep. I would, I would love to just learn a little bit about how you prep your body before you go on these journeys that last, you know, weeks. Um, yeah, definitely. And um, we tend to think of these physical, mental preps as separate things, but um, I'm learning more and more over the years um, that they're not necessarily separate. But of course, you do different things to accomplish each. and um, for really big, like high altitude mountains, uh, preparation is an ongoing thing. It's not like you only put aside certain amounts of months, weeks to to get ready. But for me, uh, you know, I have been an endurance athlete for a very long time, and I have been climbing for more than twenty five years. You know, training, physical training, has always been part of my daily life. But for for bigger expeditions, especially the one on Everest, I actually worked with a coach who is a mountaineer himself as well. And, and I just wanted to uh, make sure that my training was was right and, and specific to what was ahead of me. And there are so many things that can go uh, wrong on the mountains, small or big, doesn't matter. And there's just so much uncontrollable stuff around you. 
I figured is, is the only thing I could control was my own training. Just going with the daily life, you know, having a full-time job. But I could control my training. I could spare time for it. Um, I could arrange my life around it. And uh, I just didn't want, in general, I, I just don't want my physical condition to be the reason that I don't get to do the things that I want to do. And then, you know, that requires obviously a certain amount of discipline and that comes the mental part as well. You, you need to be really focused and, you know, as part of the physical training, I read a lot about mountaineering in general over the years. I, I, I make myself, I mean, in general, I just am very curious about all these mountaineering stories and um, different mountain ranges and different geographies. So I have been heavily immersed in the mountaineering literature in general. So that really helps too because you kind of have an idea about what is ahead of you, that the things that you see are not super surprising or shocking. Um, so that's part, of, that's part of that mental prep then. You're, yeah. you're learning from others who've done it and you're probably imagining or doing like mental scenarios of like what happens if, if this occurs. Is, it, is that where the mental prep comes in is just being comfortable in, in yeah. you know, different or weird situations? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I always think about uh, the summit day on Everest at Camp 4 and uh, I remember just you know, opening my tent door in the middle of the night to get out and start climbing towards the summit. And this, you know, cold air just, you know, on my face all of a sudden. I mean, it's, it was also already in the tent too, but like when you open, you get out, a little bit wind. And th there was this moment of anxiety and, you know, you're already super tired. It's like the seventh week in the two months long expedition, you're already exhausted and you still have like 10, 12 hours ahead of you. And, but immediately I, I just, my mind just immediately just calmed me down in the sense that it reminded me that, that I knew already it was going to be like this. I knew from all the stories that I've read, from all the books I've read, um, that, you know, this, this is a normal anxiety and, and of course, it wasn't going to be easy, you know, just visualizing that also in advance. Like I remember training while I was training in the city. That was kind of like part of my routine too. like going back to these stories and books and, you know, all, all kinds of visuals, photography and documentaries and movies, just preparing my mind to what is ahead and such that, you know, nothing was super shocking and surprising, even on the way back from the summit, uh, coming down from the summit ridge, I remember being completely, completely exhausted, like complete misery, just unbelievable misery. And all I wanted to do was just sit there and just like be. But then I immediately remembered that that's the last thing that, you know, you would want to do on the summit ridge. And that's right. part of, you know, all these stories so yeah, just examples like that just really, really helped me. Like looking back, uh, definitely I, I see that you know, those visualizations, like you said, just helps big time. Yeah, that makes sense. I know when I'm, I'm hiking with my wife, sometimes to just break up maybe a monotonous stretch, I'll throw a random scenario out because I've read about you know <laughs> people who've dealt with a snake bite or 
how do you differentiate with how you react to different types of bears? And so we'll talk about that. She's like, you're kind of ruining the hike, you know, and it's a, it's more of that mental prep of, Hey, what do we do in the worst case situation? Just so that if it comes up, you, you can be not in that shocked state or, you know, that you can carry your wits about you. So that, that sounds very familiar to me, what you're going through. Yeah. And also I have been in various kinds of scenarios myself. So it was also those experiences that, you know, helped me as well. So, you know, I, I knew how painful it can be, how miserable one can get on big mountains. So I, my body and my mind already went through those experiences in the past. I've been in the Everest region in the past several times. Uh, so most of the, most of the expedition was not uh, brand new to me. So I, I, knew what to expect um, compared to most of my teammates. Like I was, I had more experience in that region in the Himalayas in general. So definitely experience helps and others, others experiences as well help. Let's talk about the the physical prep. You mentioned having a coach. I'm sure as you're reading about other uh, people's adventures, you're also reading about their training regiment. Are you, are you to the point you're nerding out over lung volume, like the VO2 max, and like, you know, all the different body metrics, or are you just on a really rigid, you know, running and climbing type of plan? Um, VO2 max, it's interesting you refer to that because it's, a, it's a such a popular metric, but for, for endurance stuff, it just doesn't say much. Like you need other types of um, metabolic efficiency tests and, you know, with detailed analysis. Uh, VO2 ma- max is well known, but um, uh, it's not it's not very helpful in the case of climbing big mountains. Just as one data point. So tell me, tell me what it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Tell me what is then. The well, I mean, for me, uh, I I did a metabolic efficiency test um, to see basically you know where I was at as the starting point, and my coach took that as a base, uh, formulated the training accordingly, and and again, it wasn't just me. Yeah, my coach was uh, Scott Johnston and Steve House. Um, they have been, you know, coaching all kinds of people, but also like really famous big time mountaineers as well. And because like there are certain things that are proven now that works and these expeditions take a lot of time and money. And like I said at the very beginning, for many people, many informed people, that they are aware of the fact that this is the this is one of the few things you can control and they invest in in this training and coaching. So what we did, so metabolic efficiency test, I mean very simply, there's just so much into it, but we we try to identify when my body switched, you know, burning sugars to mm-hmm. fat. Mm-hmm. And you know, as much as you can, as much as that happens like further uh, away. Then, then you're in a good position. But the whole point of training is to teach the body to, uh, to trick the body to use fat as uh, energy source instead of glucose. Because in these really long expeditions and high altitude um, environments, you 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 have no appetite. You know, you your your organs don't function very well. So you are in a starvation mode. So when you prepare your body to perform while starving. And like while not craving for sugar, but instead using the already stored fat at the cellular level, even like that, that really, I mean, that helped me big time. I was, like I said, I was already an endurance athlete. I do 
in ultra running races and adventure races, overnight races, multiple day races. So I was already used to the whole suffering and everything, but this this training program taught me so much more and added a different layer on top of my existing training. And I saw great benefits from it. Like I, it, I mean, everything went well. Of course, there were lots of luck factors as well, but in terms of my physical strength and stamina and, you know, along with mental uh, part, I, I saw great, great benefits from it. But, you know, again, it was for, it was specific to Everest and for every goal, you know, you need different types of training. For example, you know, if you're going to go to climb Denali, you need to practice like pulling some tires because you will be pulling a huge sled, heavy sled while carrying a heavy backpack. So that requires you to like pull tires or you know, do something to train your back muscles. Yeah, so specifics like that, you know, if you're going to do more technical climbing, maybe you will have more, you know, you know, ice climbing as part of your training or rock climbing as part of your training. So again, depending on the goal, your training is different and it has to be specific to that goal as well. Now that's super helpful and and there's there's technical training as you mentioned that you undergo and you obviously have to be capable from from your physical body perspective. So give us an example of like a week, either, you know, whether it's the Everest or Denali trip of you went for X amount of runs or how long those runs were, you climbed in a specific altitude, uh, mm-hmm. old sleds or tires, yeah. like what, what's a week look like? Um, so again, it depends on where I am in the training program. Let's say like six months before Everest, it right. was more... So in general, I trained six days a week. So at the beginning, it was more um, uh, about uh, just basic conditioning. And then the last, so it's basically, you know, three, three, four days a week of running, uh, more aerobic workouts, and then the remaining time more strength. But again, all of the strength workouts were specific to, again, climbing, like lots of back step ups, downs. Um, some mobility, you know, weight, lots of, you know, workout uh, series with weights, um, lots of core. And the last month uh, before Everest, I actually, I had taken time off from work to be able to do all of these things. And um, I spent about three, four weeks in Chamonix in France. So then that time my training was in a completely different uh, mode. I would just put a heavy backpack on and uh, put my big boots and crampons and start like at the base of a, this is a ski resort. I would just start climbing up on the side while everyone is skiing down. <laughs> so I like, I, I would just go up with my backpack, like it would take, you know, half a day, go to the top, you know, you can climb down or I just took the uh, chairs to come down. So that was like two days a week. I did that. Uh, two days a week, I I ran, but again, these were not super fast runs, but moderate. So, uh, and then the rest of the time, again, strength training. But I was already much more stronger in the month month six or the month the, the month before um, uh, before the expedition started. But the main thing in all of these was that in, another thing that I learned is that uh, I never really trained at 100% of my capacity. And that was something that 
was heavily emphasized throughout the training program is that you you train you know at your 70%, 80%, 60% at times depending on how tired you are because this this is uh, for a goal where you will maybe you know have to use 100% of your efforts so you don't want to do that beforehand and tire yourself up more and not recover properly so that was the logic overall logic yeah and that makes that makes sense i've heard runners talk about as they're preparing for a half or a full marathon they don't they don't get to the point beforehand where they're running a, a half or a full marathon in practice they're just getting to that as you mentioned like 80% mark to prove that they can do that and then be able to actually use the the full race to hit that mark. So that that makes sense to me. I want to hop to climbing at altitude. Is there anything specific? And and we don't have, not all of us are going to hit the altitudes of an Everest, but uh, say somebody wants to go climb a Mount Whitney um, or the 14ers in Colorado. Is that, are there items that you should beyond, you know, the general principles of acclimatization that you should be doing to, to train? Or is that just something that you just got to be at elevation for a while and, and make sure you acclimate? Yeah, unfortunately, there's not much uh, one can do to prepare for it, except that recently uh, some people are using these pressurized tents um, to sleep in and train in to uh, reduce the amount of time you have to spend on the mountain for the acclimatization purposes. So right. there is that. But in general... You know, if you if you the the thing is that if you have the time, uh, you, you just get ready uh, to the altitude on the mountain, like by moving slowly, camping, spending a night, you know, just taking the time, allowing the body to get used to the altitude in in as much healthy way as possible. And some people are more prone to it as well genetically. So there is something about genetics here that in, that are in play as well. Um, right that you can't control that in general it is said to be that women again in general it's a big generalization women tend to adapt to a high altitude much better than a man and personally i you know the rules are very simple you just have to not lose focus and remember that you know you're just you you need to go slow but you know for someone like me you know, who has a full-time job living in a city and but but craving to go to the mountains all the time, there comes times where, like, I really do not have time to, you know, spend a month uh, right. to get acclimatized and, you know, make these climbs, let's say, in the Himalayas. And, of course, I would, if I have the time, absolutely. Like, I don't, I would love spending weeks um, on the mountains and get ready and acclimatized, sure. But the reality is that for someone like me who's not a professional mountaineer, it's just not possible. And um, so now I'm looking into uh, one of these renting, uh, one of these high altitude chambers, these tents to put above my bed and sleep in it and follow a certain protocol before this one climb that I want to do next fall in the Himalayas. Like I will only have maybe two weeks to do this and normally you need four weeks, which is not possible for me. So I will have to, you know, look into this other alternative. And I know that now there are more and more examples out there where people have done this and succeeded. 
again, if you don't have the time, like what are you going to do? Like give up on your dreams and don't climb and don't travel. That's just <laughs> for me, it's unacceptable. So I will do if, if there is a solution to accomplish uh, some of the acclimatization here, I will totally do it. And rem- a reminder for everybody, it's not just the max point. It's the change from where you're currently living, right? So you're at sea level yeah. um, yes, and absolutely. you're going up to 6,000 feet of base camp. That's the difference is the 6,000. It's not that you're you're at the, the measly 6,000. Um, which is, you know, not the 14 that you're, that you're hiking to. It's, it's again, that difference that you need to be familiar with. Um, we've danced around the seven summits. This is a journey you've been on for how many years, remind me? Oh, wow. It's, <laughs> well, it's, it's, it got shaped as seven summits perhaps uh, 10, 10 years ago before I was climbing. Uh, it's a, basically, it's a personal story where I, just my dad got diagnosed with cancer and in two months we lost him. And, and I remember during the preparations for the funeral and everything, it was just so overwhelming that I had to channel all my energy into something else. And I just started to plan seven summits in my head, exactly starting around that time. So it was not like something that I had always thought of or dreamt of. It just came together and got into you know certain shape after I lost my dad and just gave me something to look forward to, um, to put me into more discipline in my training in general. And yeah. Let's, let's dive into each of these. Um, I want you to attempt, well, first off, let's, let's just summarize real quickly what the seven summits are. And then after that, I'd love for you to give me like the one to three sentence description of how, what they are and how they're different, right? For, for each mountain. General reminder for the readers, because I know there's different versions and you can really like dive a little bit down the rabbit hole of what the seven summits mean to you or how they're defined, but in general, kind of what they are to you. Yeah. I mean, they are, like you said, the highest mountains in each geographic continent. Uh, it's Everest is the highest of Asia and Kilimanjaro for Africa, Denali for North America, Aconcagua for South America, Vincent Massive for Antarctica, Elbrus for Europe, for Geographic Europe. And for the seventh one, it used to be considered as the highest peak in Australia because Australia was considered as a continent in and of itself. Right. So that peak is called yeah, Kosciuszko. Um, and but then later on, people sa- said, "Wait a minute, you know, Australia is not a continent on its own, but it's part of the biggest, bigger um, Oceania continent. And if we consider Oceania as a continent, then there is this other peak, which is all, more than twice as high as this one in Australia, and that's in West Papua, and it's called Karstens Pyramid. But usually, people climb all of these." The one in Australia is really like just a peak, like 7,000 feet. Um, right. But Karstan's Pyramid in West Papua, it's 16,000 feet. And it's like perhaps the most technical climb, consistently technical climb among all these seven summits. And to me, that's that was the most interesting one. Good. So technical climb for that one. 
but let's <laughs> let's continue on. Let's do kind of the bite size for each of them. Okay, so just finish up on Karstans, this one in West Papua. It's um, you hike in in rainforests uh, about a week, and then when you get above the tree line, it's just jagged, super steep, uh, bare, rocky summit above the lush jungle. So that's Karstans in West Papua. Albrus, part of geographic Europe, because norm, sometimes people confuse it with Mont Blanc, um, but Albrus is the highest in geographic Europe. That's in part of the Caucasus range in the Russian Federation. And um, it's in a beautiful valley called Baxan Valley. Just just absolutely gorgeous rivers and mountains and the culture, everything. So that's that. Um, uh, Aconcagua is in on the Andes mountain range, but the, the peak is on the Argentinian side, so it's in Argentina, and um, it's part of the Andes National Park. It's a beautiful peak. Again, you know, travel to South America is always great. Kilimanjaro um, in Tanzania is like above 19,000 feet. Beautiful mountain but super, super, super crowded. And it's kind of steady, right? You, it's just kind of a long, it's, steady haul, right? Right. I mean, you know, you can get sick and you can get in trouble in this mountain too, but generally speaking, it's, you know, relatively easy to get to. And if you take your time, like we were saying about acclimatization, then you shouldn't have any problems, but it's just so crowded. And I that's... One thing that I remember the most about my Kilimanjaro experience was the crowds. For Antarctica, the highest is Vincent. So Antarctica is the driest uh, and coldest continent. And, and it's not owned by any country. It's just there are certain treaties that some countries are part of. And they have uh, scientific uh, stations, if you will, that they occupy seasonally. But other than that, no one lives there really, maybe except a few people during the Antarctic winter, which is like six months darkness. But um, so, so there are a few mountain ranges on the continent, and Vinson is the name of the highest peak. So that's about 16,000 feet. So it's just massive open space. And so that's the last one on my list that I am hopefully going to climb maybe next year. And then the last one on this list is Everest. Um, you know, usually uh, it comes into news through some negative and dramatic stories. And, and there's just so much attention paid to Everest being the highest mountain of Earth. And, and I do understand that attention and how these stories get spread out. But uh, in over the years... What I found out is that most of those stories really don't do it justice and just written by people who really don't understand the context very well. I'm not saying that there are no problems. There are certainly crowd problems, pollution, like everywhere. Again, uh, everywhere that's popular and be part of sure. similar problems exist. And I'm not saying that to normalize the problems, but I'm saying that it's just, you know, it's a subset of people just of the society here goes there and it's just you you experience similar problems but for the most part uh, there are just so many 
there's so much information that's categorically not correct in the ones that come out in popular magazines and press and and despite all the negativity and stigma perhaps it is just such a special place like and for me personally you know nothing can take away from that nothing no story it's just it's just utterly human there's just so much more human side to climbing this mountain and what happens on the mountain and how you feel right. and all that just just amazing and so yeah those are just little snippets for each each one well i love it. yeah yeah and i i had a set of rapid fire questions and just in you telling stories about each peak i feel like you've answered a few of them i want to recap that i had uh, most crowded you had kilimanjaro i had favorite cultural moment which sounds like the region in papua yep. um i had most technical which also sounds like that region in papua um kind of uh, interested in best food i know when you're you're hiking for weeks like you're probably packing a lot of dry, you know dehydrated food but in terms of i, I don't know if it's food of on your way to base camp or just kind of your best food experience on your summit? Well, uh, there, I, I don't know if I have any best food moments on this mountain. Usually <laughs> you're miserable and you're just eating whatever is available. And, you know, of course, like there are things that you would take with you to, you know, uh, cheer yourself up, you know, just maybe your favorite chocolate bar or, but again, like you yeah. can't really digest we're on the way down. Um, yeah. yeah. But but interesting that you mentioned about food. When I was on Everest um, 2018, uh, we were uh, doing our acclimatization climbs, and and I had a group of friends from Turkey who were trekking into base camp. So I met them at the entrance of base camp. So they were just hiking in. They were just going to take photos and go back. So they came say hi to me as well so that was great and then they opened their backpacks and <laughs> they took out these like really just delicious turkish delicacies like special type of meat oh. and special type of cheese that was just amazing like um and i went back to my tent and um i shared a little bit of that with my teammates but for most of it, i i yeah. kept it to myself and i would just ration it like i would eat a little bit every day so little things like that makes a difference maybe like on the trek or at the base camp but when you're climbing you're just really eating things that are really efficient to digest sure. and and if you can put anything in your mouth really and um yeah so there's but again for every uh mountain for every different geography and culture you know after you finish the climb <laughs> is when you get to learn about the local cuisine more and eat and drink more. And one of my favorites was in Argentina, like after I climbed and came back down to the town of Mendoza, like I am not really an omnivore. I don't eat meat that much, but I remember that I ate meat one week every day when I was in Mendoza. It was just so good and so delicious. And same thing on Albrus, you know, when you come down from the mountain to these, to this valley, where there are all these villages and just there's just so much <laughs> you, you can you can uh, smell you can hear the smells of all the meat grilled around and <laughs> so yeah. yeah just depending on the location 
Yeah, and you said you didn't have a best food right now, and then you just answered <laughs> yeah. like for four or five different stories. So I love it. Last question, Latin. This is truly rapid fire. Best view. What's what's your oh, favorite? Well, out of the well, there's no question. That's the top of Everest, the top of the world. Yeah, it's got to yep. be right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Although I'd imagine that means favorite summit as well. I'd imagine. Uh, I not. I wouldn't say favorite summit, but um, they're just all special in their own right and. They're all different experiences. And the Everest Summit is super special because literally like you're, that's the closest point that you can stand on and cl- closest to the space and everything. And we were amazing, not just during the daytime that we were on the summit, but also uh, midnight when we started climbing from Camp 4. I remember looking at the sky and looking at these stars and they were they were bigger and I was like oh you know I guess I'm you know losing my mind or something and and I'm like no it of course like you're in eight kilometers into the stratosphere of course they are bigger so they're just just amazing things that you that you see totally you've mentioned a few things of what's next for you of course Vincent to complete the seven but you also mentioned you're going somewhere in the Himalayas I think so what's what's next for you what's the big next act so there is this you know if anyone who's listening if you've done a trek to Everest base camp uh, on the way to the base camp maybe on day four there's this peak you see and then it just accompanies you for a few days and it's called Amadablam it's one of the most iconic, beautiful mountains in the world. It is regarded as one of the most beautiful ones. And uh, it is, you know, not super high, maybe like twenty, a little above 20,000 feet, 21,000 feet. It's quite technical compared to you know, others that I've climbed. It is just so beautiful. And, uh, you know, I've been in that valley four times now you know, trekking in and out and seeing this mountain from a distance for such a long time, I really want to climb it. But like I was saying, to get ready for it, uh, I have to, I will be using pressurized chambers. And so that's going to be maybe in November. But um, yeah, that's the next. And then after that, hopefully Antarctica. But then I want to also ski to North Pole and South Pole. So we'll see. <laughs> wow. And just, we didn't mention this, I, I did mention in the intro, but you'd be the first Turkish, uh, of Turkish descent to, to complete all the seven, is that correct? Uh, yeah, Turk, first Turkish woman to do the seven summits, correct. Yeah. Um, my last question normally uh, for all my guests is Trails and Ales, which is your favorite, non, I'm going to say non-summit hike that you recommend, like a day hike, if you will that you'd recommend others to do? And maybe if there's a drink stop, whether it's a brewery, a winery, a bar at the bottom, <laughs> what, what, what you recommend? Is it maybe one from Turkey, if you'd like? Um, okay. Or from where you're living currently? Yeah, so the favorite hike uh, for me is in Marin. And there's this uh, little spot called Pirate's Cove, little cove between Tennessee Valley and Muir Beach in, in, in Marin. It's beautiful. Yep. But if you're going to add, you know, some drinking and partying in it <laughs> during or after, I would have to say it has to be yeah. somewhere in the Alps. You know, when you're hiking in the Alps, you get to a hot, little hot. And then there's just amazing food and drinks and 
and you you eat and drink, you know, watching all these mountains around you and then keep keep hiking. So if you were to add food right. and drinks, that has to be in the Alps. But otherwise, locally, uh, the, the, the trails that lead to the Pirates Cove, either from Muir Beach or Tennessee Valley, that's my favorite. Nice. Well, thank you for sharing all of your knowledge, accumulated knowledge over many years hiking the summits. Uh, we've been excited to follow you along the way, excited for your next few trips, and just uh, enjoyed all of the detailed knowledge on what it is to do a summit at a prep and some of your stories along the way. So thanks, G. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yep. We'll talk soon.